anchoring your attention with whatever works best for you as an anchor, noticing the sounds coming and going from an open attention, or noticing the body sensations appearing and disappearing, or noticing the movement of the breath. Letting the attention become less scattered and becoming more still. And when you feel like the attention is relaxed and still, seeing whatever is happening moment by moment as clearly as you can. Seeing if you can fully experience what's happening and also observe it, not identify with it. Seeing if you can get out of the way and just let each moment be just what it is. moment by moment. Any questions this morning? Pardon? Maybe the moment is speeding. <laughs> I think the moment is speeding. <laughs> it reminded me of an experience I had this morning. Because uh, I had a similar perception. Uh, I was looking up at the sky, and it's really beautiful. And um, seeing the, tr- the colors on the trees, and listening to the birds. And then, um, I started singing, and then I thought, I shouldn't interfere, I'm interfering here. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not continuing to sing. And then something else comes on, 
more intense. Uh, if I keep my attention on the first secondary object, you know, I can stay there, although this other is, is clearly more intense. Should, should you go where the intensity is, or just stay until this first one plays itself out? Sometimes it's choiceless. So the attention would just move to what's more intense, and then uh, there's no decision. If there feels like a decision, uh, usually you go with what's pr predominant, meaning that you'd go to the more intense. In her talk last night, Sharon um, mentioned at the beginning the impersonal nature of the body um, and how, as with the mind, we cannot control what comes up in the mind. We also can't control what comes up in the body. And then, in the latter part of the talk, she was discussing karma and how our current situation and experience is directly affected by past actions. And it's known that if one abuses their body by smoking or using alcohol or other drugs or, or if one teaches small children who cough in their faces, <laughs> that one is more likely to be ill later on. So, what are the ways in which we can reconcile, on the one hand, not having control over what happens in the body, and on the other hand, what's happening is a result of our past actions? Did everyone hear? What we have no control over is, in the present moment, whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that the, what, we're, what we're receiving each moment is an effect from something it could be from thousands of lifetimes ago. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't do the best we can to care for what's happening in the moment. You know, so the, I think that that's how we reconcile. You know, we, if something is off in the body, we do the best we can to care for it. It doesn't mean that we become indifferent to what's happening because we don't have control over how things are appearing. You know, so in, in, in some ways, we don't have to figure out why something is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, uh, what, or why something's happening. It's much more to try to drop in to the moment and be with the process of what's happening. Uh, and in that way, there's this caring for what's happening. If we don't react to what's happening, you know, which is what is getting in the way. When we react with uh, aversion or attachment, then we're creating more effect. <laughs> so that the cause is the aversion, the delusion, the attachment.
Right. The question is, is there any feeling of responsibility or, or guilt with, with illness? Uh, hopefully, one starts to see by being with the process, this is why we keep encouraging you to be with the process now, if you see aversion in the moment very clearly, you'll see it isn't anybody's. Or if you see attachment in the moment very clearly, you'll see it isn't anybody's. Um, (laughs) It's like wanting is what wants. It's not us that wants, it's wanting that wants. And aversion is what doesn't like. (laughs) It's not my aversion, it's the the not wanting that, that hates. Uh, so, what one starts to see is that this whole play of what's happening is, isn't personal. You know, so, there is no guilt. <laughs> uh, the responsibility comes in in that the more you start to see that, if you start to see clearly, there's less reacting, one becomes motivated to uh, see more clearly. Yeah, I wouldn't see it so much as we dress them up. They just, in that moment, in that moment that, say a sound happens, in that moment it will be pleasant. It's simultaneous. And in, in, in that moment with a sound, it will be neutral. It's simultaneously. We don't do anything to make it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It just happens simultaneously. That's why, that's where that, the saying, we have no control over what's happening, it's simultaneous. It's the sound and the pleasantness. It happens at the same time. And all we can do is to try to be as clear as we can to notice that, uh, and, and if we're reacting, uh, to notice that we're reacting. And the embellishment happens, the proliferation happens, as, as we're, the less mindful we are, the more we dress it up. You know, it's like, we see the car, it's red, I wish I had a red car, or maybe when I get home. <laughs> you know, that's, that's when we start really dressing it up. <laughs> do, do you think it's all at all beneficial to really look at that sort of train of association that you just uh, expressed uh, after the fact? For example, what the original thought was, and then what the, the train of association became. Um, the question is, is there any benefit in looking at the train of thought that happens from the original thought to notice the embellishment? Is there any particular uh, well, I way? Well, I find myself doing it sometimes. Uh-huh. And, and, um, at times, I think it's helpful to see just the cycling through, and other times I get caught even further. Mm-hmm. So. That's The danger is that it becomes... Um, so much more interesting than <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> you know, uh, I think there are times when 
I think it's helpful at times to reflect back on what was the original source of these grand dramas and embellishments. It's helpful to reflect back. I think to have an intention to sort of look at where, how we're embellishing, unless it's unless you're having some kind of major psychological insight about something, you know, and it, you haven't figured it out intellectually, you know, but you've really come, you, there's been an aha. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect on that for five minutes. <laughs> Check the watch. <laughs> if it goes over five or ten minutes, you really get it. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> the twelve last line about the metal and the enemy. Um, I started thinking about the enemy, and I had trouble identifying an enemy I know personally. But I certainly know what enemies in the world I can choose to be dictatorship in Burma right now, or in a thousand other places. You know, Well, you're very lucky you don't have a personal, difficult person, you know. You could, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. So, so, in terms of difficult person, what I would recommend is that when you do this difficult person, that you don't pick really difficult people or really difficult situations to start with. Because um, what we're doing is breaking down the barriers. That might be more helpful to see. In ter- uh, you start with what's easy, and then you keep strengthening in the metta what's easy. And the, it's the actual force of the metta which helps break down the barriers, meaning that if there's somebody or some situation that we're really angry about, metta is the opposite of anger. Uh, so, tonight, if you do it, for example, I wouldn't pick maybe the most difficult place on the planet. You might pick, you know, something a little milder to start with and see if you can break down the barrier with that. Meaning that you are able to send metta. Well, I understand the process, but maybe I was picking a thousand points and they already projected it into the world. Yeah, and sometimes it's in the case that you're suggesting, it's helpful to tune into compassion, which we'll move into later, rather than metta. Because when there's really a suffering situation, whether it's inside or outside, to say, may you be happy. It just doesn't cut the mustard, you know. It just it isn't it isn't touching it in the way that compassion does, which 
would be more caring about the suffering. So that might be a better um, way to work with those kind of situations. Uh, But we do have tremendous, usually, reactions of anger to these situations. Uh, And we can transform our reaction of anger into compassion. We can transform that reaction. It's like transforming our awareness of suffering into metta or into compassion. And we do that by, we, if we hit the anger, we back up, we back off into the dear friend or benefactor and, and develop the metta again. And you break down the barrier by having the strength of metta. It's not by, you're not breaking the barrier by banging into the anger with more anger. You know, it doesn't, you know, the, the great saying by the Buddha, Buddha, hatred does not appease hatred in this world. Have a good day. In the um, bow hour, uh, I was wondering my posture for um, slump, and then I'll correct it. And I was wondering if you would recommend staying with a slump posture or correcting. Um, mostly, I think it's good to straighten. Occasionally, just as an experiment, you might not, and see where you end up. (laughs) You might end up with your nose close to the floor. And the reason I say occasionally, just as an experiment to do that, having done that, it might actually make you more alert in the other times to what is now kind of those unconscious moments of slumping. Could you talk in general on opening to emotional and physical pain, um, including um, how investigation in depth might be helpful while we're opening. Okay, the sense of opening to pain, whether it's physical or emotional, really has to do with learning how to make a bigger and bigger frame around the experience. And by that I mean uh, sort of stepping back opening up with the attitude or the way of relationship to the pain, it's okay, let me feel it. And so reminding yourself to relax into it, to relax into the opening with a big frame around it. Um, On the investigation side, You need to be a little careful with that because 
You want to be investigating to the extent of staying really alert to what is happening. So you sort of that quality of precision. It's easy for investigation to become an agenda. And so that's what you want to be cautious about. You're not aware of it, you're not being with it in order for anything to happen. But that in order to mind is very subtle. Uh, and generally with pain, the first order of business, whether it's physical or emotional, is the uh, foundation of acceptance. That's really the basis for understanding. You don't want the investigation or the subtle, bringing a subtle agenda to it to be a barrier or a, a hindrance to, to the acceptance. When you feel that you really are in a place, you're simply with it. You're not with it in order for anything to happen. You really feel that there is that quality of soft acceptance. That's when you can begin to just look more precisely, you know, and sort of be using the investigation factor. And there are a few steps in it. One would be the clear recognition of what it is, whether whether it's the clear recognition of the kind of physical sensation or the clear recognition of the specific emotion that's there. You could investigate from that place of acceptance, if you really, you know, if you are settled in that place of openness, you could look to see the degree to which there's identification with that emotion or not. You know, and so that could be another, another avenue of investigation. Um, am I hooked in this? Am I identified with it? Or is there simply the emotion as another appearance of mind? In the most basic level of understanding, and this, this may be hard to believe, <laughs> but an emotion is really no different than a sound. It's just another phenomenon arising. The problem is we tend to personalize emotions much more than we personalize sound. And we, we generally don't say, my sound. Even though we might say, I'm hearing. I mean, we might create the self in that. But we don't generally claim the sound as being self. But we almost always claim the emotion as being self. So that would be an interesting thing to look at. Why? It's equally another phenomenon arising. It's certain it's the appearance of the rainbow. A black rainbow, or a <laughs> you know, but it's just certain conditions come together and this phenomenon happens. But our conditioning is so strong, you know, to personalize it. So again, that's the kind of investigation that's interesting, 
but it needs to be done on the basis of acceptance. I think the judicious use of (laughs) (laughs) caffeine is not a problem. (laughs) But again, just the other side of that, people are very different in their sensitivities to it. And so you really have to see yourself. For some people, it just kind of gives that extra little spark of alertness. Other people's bodies really have a strong reaction to it, and it gets out of balance. So if that happens, I wouldn't take it, but otherwise it's a tried, <laughs> tried and sometimes true method. <laughs> Could you say a little bit more about the foundation for acceptance with peacefulness? What I mean by that is that I, I, I feel like I should be mindful, and when I find myself drifting off, sometimes and catch myself in fantasy or reverie or whatever, I think, I, I find it hard to accept that's where I am at that moment. You know, it's like I should be mindful. I almost wrench myself back to the breath. Or, you know, I should go back to the breath. And I'm not quite sure where volition fits into the picture, where one accepts what's there, and then when one moves oneself back to you know. Okay, I think you're just missing one critical moment there, uh, or, or not acknowledging it, which is in the moment of you're being aware that you've wandered, in that moment you are already aware. So there's no, it's not a question of pulling yourself back to awareness. You are already aware in the moment of recognizing that you've been wandering. So from that place, then it's simply a question, do you stay aware of the remnants of the thought or whatever it was in which you had been lost (laughs) or, you know, has that gone and you come back to the breath. But that's a very gentle uh, decision already from the place of mindfulness. So you want to recognize, that's, you want to recognize that moment. Do you follow? Yeah, and then it, then it's really simple. It doesn't matter because the practice is not about necessarily being with one object rather than another. It's about being aware. And since you are already aware in that moment, everything's fine. One way to help you frame or recognize that moment, you know, very often we're lost in a thought and we become aware, maybe even after the thought is over. At that moment, you could make the note remembering. Because actually, that's what's happening. You're remembering that you were thinking. So then, you're just picking up the whole noting mind, noticing mind, right in that moment with the note. Oh, remembering, remembering, in, out. So you're right back in 
mindfulness is sort of vibrates in and out from loss and then, then mindfulness, loss and then mindfulness, and loss and mindfulness again. Um, how does one handle? I mean, do you, do you, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't guess I have a question there. I'm just sort of struggling with it. Well, one of the things that hopefully one learns is uh, to stop judging it. You know, that this is the practice. If we were aware all of the time, without distraction, you wouldn't have had to come at all. <laughs> it's called meditation practice. <laughs> because that's exactly what it is. It is practicing awareness, just like you practice the piano or practice tennis. So just be careful about the perfectionist models in the mind that sets up an expectation, well, I should be mindful all the time. That's ridiculous. There, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful idea. <laughs> Maybe at some point that will happen. But we are practicing that. So that way you take delight in the fact, in those moments when you realize you've been lost, well, smile in that moment, oh yeah, I got it now even if it's just for the next two or three breaths, and then again. I'm under, I understand, I'm very comfortable with this idea of disidentifying with our emotions and seeing our emotions sound. And you tend to get into that mindset, and it's very useful. But then when I get confused is when we go back to the meta, where we're deliberately creating an emotion and trying to identify with it. It seems somehow discordant to me to go from one mind state to the other mind state and sort of back mm -hmm. and forth. I don't really see how it all fits together. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's two separate practices, and but the difference is not what you said it is. <laughs> it's a different difference. <laughs> the difference being that in Vipassana, the idea, we're not, we're not uh, trying to cultivate any particular emotion, but rather just staying with this open, choiceless awareness, noticing uh, the flow of phenomena, the flow of experience. So whatever comes, our job is simply to be aware of it. In the metta practice, or any of the Brahma-viharas, we are actually choosing, yeah, we're going, to, we're going to cultivate this particular emotional state. But that doesn't mean that we're practicing identifying with it. Even in doing the metta practice, it's not, it's to develop the feeling and to feel it, to be completely, to allow the feeling to suffuse the mind, the body, so it gets very strong. But the identification with that is still something extra. And so we can be cultivating the metta without the sense of it belonging to me, belonging to self. And just as, you know, an example of that, which uh, the example of all great enlightened states, if we think of the Buddha, you know, who it said, you know, was, had perfected love and compassion and all these wonderful qualities of mind, but there was no 
self in any of that. There was no identification with that. It was just the recognition, this state is wholesome, this state is beneficial. Let it be developed. Is that clear to you? Or? So there is a choice. The difference is that there is definitely a choice we're making to cultivate this state, but it need not be done, and it, it really shouldn't be done, from a place of identification with it. Right, right. Yeah. No, it is, because metta is... You know, meditation is divided into two main tracks, the awareness practices and concentration practices. In the concentration practices, you are choosing a particular object to focus on. It could be the breath, it could be a sound, it could be a mantra, it could be the 32 parts of the body. The Buddha listed 40 subjects of concentration meditation, including metta. So there is, there is that choice, and that's characteristic of samadhi practice. It's like it's the development of a one-pointedness as opposed to sort of an open awareness you know, of whatever is arising. So in that sense, you're correct. It, it really is it's two different ways of practice. They both feed one another. So they're not at all in conflict, but they are different. Okay, this afternoon uh, at the 3.45 sitting, we'll have uh, time for more questions. What questions do you have this morning? Yeah. I've got a question, maybe a few questions, series of questions formulating in my mind about conditioning and deconditioning. And it seems like if, a, say, a sensation arises, there's a perception, feeling, a mental formation, if you can catch it at the level of feeling, perhaps that mental formation won't arise and sort of be free. But to decondition the mind, You have to kind of get down to the level of the of perception, the conceptual level. It seems like, and maybe, but that suppose you flashed on emptiness, no self. It's still it seems it would take some time for that to dissolve. You're not going to get rid of all that conditioning just like that, are you? <laughs> you know what I'm getting at. It seems like it would take some time for that to. The feelings would still come up if your understanding was pretty complete. The feelings and perceptions would still be working in there for a time. Maybe eventually they might. Right. Right. Um, did you hear the question? And did you understand it? <laughs> Is that asking about the conditioning of the mind, which has occurred, we'll say, in the past, in this way. Sensory uh, experience has been felt as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, and in our unawareness or blindness, 
we have liked, disliked, or ignored that experience, and from that liking have attached to that pleasure, or from the disliking have uh, become averse to that displeasure, or from the neutrality have basically been unclear about what that experience is. And the habit of all those conditionings has resulted in our personality, or something like that. And he said, asked, how can we decondition the mind? Or does deconditioning happening happen over a period of time, or is it instantaneous with clear seeing of anicca, anatta, and dukkha? Is that the question? Essentially. Sort of like that's in the framework. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're trying to decondition the mind. We're trying to decondition our habitual blind reactions to sensory stimuli, sensory including the mind. To catch at the feeling stage. Huh? So that when we experience anything, there is a process where we feel, we judge, liking, disliking, we attach or averse, and then we think about, reflect over and over and over what it is we've experienced. Really hate it and push away. When we do see the feeling tone of the experience, well, let me just say that when we begin practice, what we notice is our strong attachments and aversions. And after we work with them for some period of time, we get down to a level of noticing maybe the liking and disliking before we attach or become averse. And if we work with liking and disliking, then we can get down to, and the mind becomes sharp enough to see the pleasant or unpleasant quality of experience before we get to liking, before we get to attachment. We get down to the pleasant or unpleasant perception of experience, at which time it's very difficult to formulate thoughts, ideas of permanence, sukha, satisfactoriness, and uh, a firm sense of self. Very, it's, it's impossible to. When, you fee, when your perception or your recognition is at the level of feeling, tone, in each moment. So it's not a matter of, does it slowly happen? It happens in the moment that you see clearly or feel, notice the feeling before the uh, emotional reaction. Over time, do those feelings stop coming up? No. (coughs) Feelings in the terms, in the sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, no, they do not stop. Even the Buddha, fully, who had fully deconditioned his attachments and aversions and confusions, still had feeling of pleasant and unpleasantness. So that when he got sick, or when he had his headaches or backaches, he felt unpleasant. What he didn't do was react aversively to it with displeasure in the mind. So the feeling of the feeling tone of the sensory experience still present, still arising. Yeah. And that, that's why it's so important to begin to see in your own practice that the experience of pain or unpleasantness 
is not bad practice. That's not what we're not trying to get rid of unpleasant experience. There's a, it's real important to begin to distinguish between dukkha, unpleasantness, and personalizing it as mine. Real important too. I mean, that's where the, the space of freedom lies in seeing that dukkha happens. I don't have to suffer with it. I don't think we'd find universal agreement with that in this room. <laughs> you know, as we go along, it just gets smoother and subtler and more pleasant. Not always. Not always, really. I, I'm talking yeah. not maybe during the <laughs> <laughs> Throughout that imaginary uh, uh, <laughs> future. <laughs> It comes as well as increasing subtlety to the perception of dukkha also. That also comes, you know, that, that increasing sense of pleasantness or less do okayness comes. And also there comes an increasing subtlety of the perception of dukkha. So that even you know, what might now feel very pleasant and uh, quite nice may not look that way at another level of insight. <laughs> Maybe we need a, a full talk on dukkha. Just what, what that all means. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon? Jesus stained glass, there was also one of these ghosts hanging in a sheet with the head and the 
<laughs> and then a couple steps later I thought, oh, that's pretty uncharacteristic. <laughs> and just as that thought arose, the ghost started moving towards me <laughs> and said, stop, when I looked, it was actually the shorter of the two men that he was walking backwards. <laughs> and walking backwards is just her white hat, which is at the ball, and then the floor went. And so as soon as I realized, I started to laugh. And I'm looking around and everyone's very serious. And I thought, ooh, I better be serious. You can't laugh. It has to be very, I have to realize suffering. I have to have <laughs> And I almost felt guilty for laughing. I, I get the point. I got it. I got it. Let, let me just inquire. Did you note seeing when you saw the first, what's, whatever, hanging down the, down the road? Did you note seeing? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So then you went on to a long train of thought about that and Halloween and kids and all that. Did you note all those thoughts, all those feelings, all those perceptions? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> it can happen that when we don't note initial uh, sensory input, we can get caught in a tremendous story about what's happening. And it may end up being humorous, and it may not. And. Um, there definitely seems to be a place for humor in, in spiritual practice. And often, just like that, that things are hilarious or uh, ridiculous or whatever. But, and I think it happens, uh, to give you the Abhidharma model of humor, <laughs> is that as the mind becomes clear and more kind of, uh, transparent and crystalline in its perception, then it becomes very light. And humor often is a very light, buoyant quality in the mind and body. And as we become more sensitive to our mind and body, it becomes very, we've, our perception of it is very light. And uh, sometimes it can take nothing to just set off that lightness bubbling along. So it's. The Abhidhamma model is that lightness, pliancy of mind gets highly developed and, and then uh, some thought arises. Uh, I don't think you can be very serious all the time. It'll just happen. One, one last brief question. Can you talk about um, cultivating continuity of awareness? Um, one of the things I'm noticing about my practices with sits, for the end of the sit, there's an intensity that builds up in um, <coughs> sensation and awareness. And then with the bell, I'll um, either continue or then I'll get up and I'll go into walking or what I'm doing. And then I'll notice 
quality of almost sometimes relief at the bell or and then I as I go about the next activity that intensity leaves or the awareness is not as sharp or continuous and then I'll come back in and then it builds up again on the cushion and um, it seems it's, I wanted to make it. I want to make it brief, you know. Yeah. But the question is basically about cultivating that continuity, or somehow cultivating that energy that builds while on the yeah. and, yeah. and bringing that into walking and, yeah. and vice yeah. versa. There, there might be some confusion about intensity and continuity. We can be very continuous and not be. Um, locked into some attachment to intensity. <laughs> but often, you know, we, we, we're kind of intensity junkies. And, you know, if it's not really intense, then nothing's happening. And uh, in walking particularly, uh, because there's a lot of movement, uh, the, the intensity of physical uh, stuff is much subtler than in sitting. And so the continuity can still be there, but the intensity uh, may be different, may be a different experience of intensity in that continuity. So I would encourage you to, to really check to see that you're connecting your attention to every moment and sustaining your attention on the experience of every moment to uh, build up the continuity. And uh, walking can get very intense also. If, you, if you're looking to make walking intense, Really, you know, connect and sustain your attention with each uh, phase of each step and each turning and each stopping, and it'll get intense. I think real quick. Yeah, you might. Oh no, uh, I was going to say you might reflect on the perception of continuity experiencing anicca. Anicca being discontinuity of phenomena. But don't reflect on that. I, maybe there'll be a talk about that. <laughs> it's, time, it's time for practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.